Listener advisory. This is just a stupid podcast we're doing for shits and giggles, so we apologize to anybody that has to be subjected to, well, you know, all of this. If you stick around long enough, I'm sure you'll see what I mean. If you find dark humor and discussing awful shit with a bit of levity distasteful, well, how do you exist? Seriously, what's your secret and how do you live like that? It's weird. But really, this podcast will probably not be for you, and you'd be better off listening to any of the more somber-toned true crime podcasts that are available, because there are tons of them. For those of you still listening, you sick and twisted fucks, welcome to the worst. If we did this right, hopefully you won't like yourself by the end, but you'll laugh. Hello and welcome to The Worst, the podcast of everything that is the worst. I'm your host, Mark, and sitting next to me is my lovely wife and co-host, Gina. Hello. And together, of course, we are Mental Illness Theater. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. How are you doing, I would say, tonight, but we're in daylight for the first time today, this time. Yeah, like, we are. We've rolled into the morning while recording before from the night, but we've never actually started with daylight. We have not. This is weird. These are normally scary sorts, but... Uh, well, I mean, this guy, he's hes not a murderer, but he does a lot of rape. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's scary enough. Yeah. I find it scary. But scary stories are best told in the dark. Right. So, this is a little weird. So, do you want to hear a story, honey? I always want to hear a story from you, honey. <laughs> well, today we have a rapey extravaganza with Fred Coe, the South Hill rapist. Oh, boy. And his family. Oh, his family plays such a prominent part, and they're just fucking awful there's just this one turned into a long one and it wasn't supposed to be it was supposed to be oh a rapey he's a bad guy right it, uh, very simple and then you get into all the side shit and it was just like oh oh fred you piece of scumbag and then you're gonna love the mother you're <laughs> so because when i tell you who she reminds me of i know you're gonna laugh because yeah oh yeah i think so oh boy so yeah, today is Fred Coe, and he, he's a trip. He's a lot. It's a long one and a lot of rape, nastiness, so buckle up. Yeah, if that is not your bag, we get it. And fair enough. I understand a lot of people, this won't be their bag, because, you know, it's rape. It's ugly. You oh, know, it's messy. It's really, you know, what can you say? Right. You can, there are arguments for certain types of murder like self-defense or whatnot there's never an excuse for rape no. period like that's the exactly end. <laughs> you raped you were wrong period it's one of the few crimes like that oh absolutely so yeah we definitely get it and the victims on the flip side you live with it forever yeah it changes your life yeah so it, it's not great no exactly it's it's a terrible so you know we're, we do the worst, so yeah, we don't shy so away from... Yeah, like, I've told you about the, the Russian baby killer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if I can get more info on him, I forget his name, but it was this dude, he killed five infants in, like, a couple months in Russia, in Moscow, during the Soviet era. Yeah, just for fun. If I can find more info, I'd totally do an episode on him. Russian ones are hard to get info on. Especially that, that era with that type of crime. They didn't want to talk about that. Like Nobody wants to talk about that, generally. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he was involved or related to someone high in politics or military. Ah. So, yeah, it was kind of just shoot him, get rid of him, forget about it. Yeah, it never happened. Mm. Exactly. That, Russian style. Yeah. yeah Stone, oh, I understand Russian style. That just never happened. Yeah, Stone was always in the peck by himself. Fuck yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so getting to Kevin Coe. Did I call him Kevin Coe? It's actually Fred Coe. I'm going to screw that up the whole time. Because he changes his name. And so when I was doing this, sometimes you see Fred, sometimes you see Kevin. I refuse to call him Kevin because fuck him. He's a rapist. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get to change your name. No. So during a four-year span in the late 70s and early 80s, <laughs> the women of Spokane, Washington, were preyed on by a prolific serial rapist who operated in the South Hill neighborhood, an upper-middle-class place that wasn't accustomed to this kind of crime spree. You know, posh people. Right. Right. The police would eventually arrest and convict Frederick Coe for six of these assaults, although he was believed to be guilty of dozens of similar rapes. Oh, how lovely. They believed he was the South Hill rapist, and I'm pretty sure, I know it's later, but I'm pretty sure they think he's at least 30 rapes. Oof. Yeah. 
but the arrest wasn't even close to the end of the story. Over the next two decades, it would include retrials, jogging, hypnosis, hitmen, vigilantes, and bad luck, leading to only one of the, uh, one of the six convictions actually sticking. Yeah, gross. Yep. But through a combination of prosecutors and judges that realized what kind of monster Co is, Co's actual actions during this entire thing and his refusal to even remotely act human, this charge proved enough to keep him locked up for life. That's a good thing. Right? The, this is a frustrating one, too, but... Kevin Coe was born on February 2nd, 1947, so he's an Aquarius. <laughs> it's very important, as always, as Frederick Harlan Coe, the oldest child of Gordon and Ruth Coe. The Coes were a well-known and powerful family in Spokane, with Gordon serving as the city editor of the Spokane Daily Chronicle for 25 years before becoming managing editor in 1975. So his father's a newspaper man. He basically yeah. runs one of the town newspapers. His mother, Ruth, was a stylish, flamboyant socialite who had taught girls <laughs> grooming and finishing school. Oof. And she also worked freelance in fashion and modeling. Wow. She also felt her status was much higher than it actually was. <laughs> and she was diagnosed as manic-depressive in 1973, and from that moment on basically lived on a lithium carbonate cocktail for the rest of her life. Now, she sounds high-maintenance. From the pictures I saw and the way she speaks in the whole nine, she reminds me of a psychotic Moira Rose. <laughs> like, seriously, take her from Shit's Creek and make her, where she's kind of lovable crazy, right. make her completely off the fucking rails and, like, throwing shit nuts, and you have this woman. Oh, Yeah, you have Ruth Coe. Wow. Never trust someone whose entire name is two syllables. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, Ruth Coe. Now, the Coasts seemed to be a normal, happy family in South Hill while Fred was growing up. But Fred and his mother had a very complex relationship, to say the least. You don't say. Yeah. While he was growing up, Ruth had a habit of screaming about how terrible Fred was while having full-on childlike tantrums, complete with throwing things and kicking, like laying on the floor, kicking tantrum. Nice. But in the next moment, the next moment... She would be lavishing attention and praise on, on him, usually in a creepy, seductive tone of voice. Oh, God. Yeah. Many who saw them together said they were more like a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship than a mother-son. So Ruth and Fred... Cinda. <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. I mean, me and my mother were tight, but we were never... I don't think anyone ever thought... I fucking hope not. Right? That's fighting words. Uh, Coe's former wife, Jennifer, who he married in 1972, said Ruth was very jealous of her and Fred's relationship. They divorced in 1976, but they started up again shortly after, because it's the 70s. You know, this is what you do. Right. But they had to keep the rela relationship secret for years to not upset Ruth. When she did find out that they were back together, she went to Fred's house and trashed one of his cars in a fit of rage. <sighs> Yep. Then when he had it repaired, she showed back up and trashed the car again. Jesus. And Jennifer said that uh, Fred sulked like a child for weeks about this, and she couldn't figure out whether it was because of the trash cars or because Mommy was mad. Oh, oh, it's both. If you're sulking like that, like a child, that's because Mommy's mad. Yeah. I think Fred might have had some Mommy issues. Oh, you think? <laughs> Yeah. Now, this is the kind of man you don't want to date. There's being close with your mother, and then there's this guy. Then there mess. are red flags. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Mm. Being yeah. fucking swung around like the checkered flag at a race. And yeah. This guy. Yeah. One of the first documented signs that Fred might not be so normal was in 1966 when he was 19. He accompanied a 16-year-old girl to a dance, and afterwards, he offered to give her a drive home. But instead... He drove her away from town, stopped in an isolated area, and he tried to rape the girl. Yeah, that's not great. Right. He failed at this, probably from what I will call from now on and will forever be christened the Chickatillo Limp. Because <laughs> he has some problems in that area. <laughs> he has some evidence problems. He could use some pills from the gas station, <laughs> he could he? He could use something. And I just like the, the phrase Chickatillo Limp because if you know the Chickatillo story. Yeah. 
He pulls his limp deck out in the middle of the trial mm -hmm. and screams about how it doesn't work. While to prove he couldn't have raped. While being in pajamas in a cage with a shaved head. Russia, yeah, if you haven't seen that, you should. You should Russia that. in the 90s was mad crazy. Uh, and then, well, the rape didn't work. According to the girl, after that didn't work, he, he did some, quote, violent shaking. Jacking it. Ah. Yes. Before driving her back to town. Wow. Now, this girl, she had some sense because she told her mother about the attack. Shit, Mom, this happened. And they did go to the police, but they declined to press charges because they were worried about what kind of effect it would have on her 16-year-old daughter in 1966. Yeah. That's... Under-fucking-standable. Yeah. You're probably not going to get any justice of it, and they're going to just run your daughter through the mud. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be... It's going to be her fault. Right? It's terrible, but... Sign of the times. Hi, Lily. <sighs> she was expressing her opinion on the matter. Right. In 1971, Co entered a woman's apartment while she slept. Oh, God, I forgot about this. <laughs> Where he was caught fondling her breast and rubbing his flaccid dick on her stomach. Ew. Co. Oh, no. No, 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 yep. no. Oh, God. That's, that's fine. No, it's. So not hot. Coe would later claim that he was having a bad reaction to a medication he had started taking <laughs> and didn't know where he was, and that's obviously why he was smearing his dick on this woman like it was jelly. Yeah, yeah. clearly. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. He's on Ambien. I don't think Ambien existed then. Isn't Ambien relatively modern? 71, God knows. Yeah. One of those drugs that you need to for any effect before will kill you. Yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, it's bullshit. Come on. You, you, mm -hmm. you don't do that. No. Yeah, right. It's bullshit. Yeah, that's total bullshit. Except for as a rapist, Coe was a failure in every sense of the term. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Wiener. Being from a well-to-do family, he strived to be a yuppie. Wearing the best clothes, idolizing Hugh Hefner, and he fretted about fashion and he only drank Perrier water. Oh, dear. Yeah. God. 70s yuppie douche nozzle. That's unbelievable. I, I just... And juxtaposed with the crazy mother, it's just... <laughs> oh, is... yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm assuming the father who spent a lot of time at the newspaper just to avoid... Yeah. yeah. His rapist son and his crazy fucking wife. Yeah, right? Yeah. But Co failed to succeed at everything he tried. So, kind of not a great yuppie. He claimed that he was a news editor, radio DJ, media man, prize fighter, and he was also an author. <laughs> he, he was none of these things, was he? Oh, Jesus Christ. He wrote a book <laughs> called Sex in the White House slash Cuz After All, Politics is a Dirty Business. Oh my God. Cuz and Business both spelled with Zs. Oh. And let me tell you. First, I think we've all known this guy. Big claims, and he did nothing pans out. Like, oh, we've all known that guy. Like Especially the DJ, young. Yeah, the radio DJ. He went to school to be a radio DJ and never did anything with it. Yeah. So you're not really a radio DJ. No, not at all. Yeah. Despite considering this book as magnus opus, those who read it called it cocky and prone to bragging about his own sexual conquests, amazing physical exploits, all while claiming himself to be, quote, one of our country's greatest satirists. Nair. I've looked for this book anywhere because I want to see how he works stories about his dick into a book about the White House. <laughs> I want to see how this fucking narcissist rapist fuck does that plus he spells two words with s's with z's in the title uh, of his book oh uh, it's gonna be awful though <sighs> unreadable yeah trash mm-hmm but in reality when he was arrested in 1990 or er, 81 his marriage had failed he wore wigs to be more appealing to people and he was working as an unsuccessful real estate agent Co was also living off his parents at the age of 34, which I'll even, I've got a lot of help from my parents for a long time. I never represented myself as a successful yuppie. No. You know God, what I mean? No. I didn't do that. Right? I have no problem. Like, the world's tough. Yeah. Yeah, if you can get help, get, get help. Yeah. Fuck yeah. But don't walk around like you're fucking 
Mr. Peanut with your monocle looking down on people drinking your Perrier water where it's like, your mom right. bought you your fucking suits. She probably bought you every bottle of Perrier water, too. <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh. oh, fuck this guy. So he's walking around in wigs drinking Perrier water. I was going to ask about the wigs. Was he? Did he lose his hair or is it just wigs for fun? <sighs> I tried to find that out. Oh, God. Personally, as a bald man, I think being bald would destroy this guy, so I'd like to think he's bald. <laughs> but if not, it's even more pathetic. Yeah, right. Because you have hair, and it's like, well, this person likes fucking this haircut. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like my personality? I made it just for you. Right? Like, this guy's such a little shit stain. Yeah. He's oh a my fucking... God. Uh, Greasy. Right? So Spokane, Washington was a quiet city in the 70s and 80s with a population right around 200,000. So pretty small. Located in eastern Washington between the Cascade Mountains and the Rockies, it has a strangely mild winter for its location and about half the rainfall of Seattle, about 300 miles away. And that's about the closest city, because this place is isolated. Like, go to far east Washington into the mountains where you almost touch Idaho, you'll hit Spokane. So it's this strange little isolated city kind of... I found it weird because even on the map... A normal map, you see there's nothing around it, and then you see the topographical, and it's just fucking mountains. Weird. So you're in Yeti country. Mm. Yeti doesn't mind. Yeti doesn't mind. Yeti doesn't mind. One thing the city is known for, though, is jogging. Spokane got on the jogging train early, and in May 1977 began the Bloomsdale Race, which still continues to, to this day. And South Hill, with its many parks and places to run, became a favorite area for joggers. And a rapist. Yeah. At least one. Well, I mean. That gets complicated. Pray. Right. <sighs> the first attack to be linked to Co. happened in April 1978. After having a fight with her husband and leaving a restaurant, a 19-year-old woman called Jean C. was walking home when she was attacked by a man in jogging clothes who jumped her from behind a parked car. Co. dragged her off the street and into some bushes where he began to physically and sexually assault her. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Then we get some details, so... Yeah. Buckle up. Yeah. Not great. Jean tried to scream, but the attacker shoved a gloved fist down her throat to prevent her from doing <sighs> so. And this would be his main signature. Always a gloved hand down the throat. Don't yep. like that. Yep. During the attack, Co asked the woman to use the bathroom so he could watch. Or on him. Probably on him, I'm guessing, from what happens in later attacks. Oh. Yeah. So he's into water sports. <laughs> yes, he is. And Jogging and water sports. When Co finished, he threatened that if Jean went to the police, he'd come back and kill her. Afterwards, the woman did contact the police, but they were unable to find a suspect. Helpful. So there's the first attack. And we already have... I'm sure she heard about how it was all her fault. What was she wearing? Yeah. And you shouldn't have stormed out of... You know, having an argument with your boyfriend. Yeah, I'm sure that's where it started. Right there. Like, oh, we're sorry, honey, that happened to you, but what were you doing out there on your own? Oh, yeah. you got in a fight with your boyfriend? Well, you know, shouldn't have been out there alone. Exactly. Yeah, I can only fucking imagine in 1978. Well, you still get that now, so. Well, that's what I'm saying, yeah. right? And this is, what, 30, 40 years ago? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But good for her. At least she did contact oh, yeah. the police. So Power it's on her. record She's that this girl. happened, right? Oh, fuck yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In September 1979, an almost identical rape was committed. One evening, Shelly Monahan, a radio desk jockey known as Sunshine Shelly, saw someone lurking around the parking lot. When it happened again, she asked her manager to install lights in the parking lot and a lock on the studio door. There was no freaking lock on the door? No. And, of course, neither one of these things was done at her request. No, why would we lock the studio door? Why would we have lights in no the parking lot? No one would ever lot? think to come steal equipment or anything. That's weird. Or, you know, other more horrible things. Well, yeah, but, I mean, even theft. You would think that they would just lock up basic I found that part theft. pretty amazing, too. Hello, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not even a lock on the door. Yeah, that's messed up. While leaving work How one they day. they get insurance? Maybe <laughs> they did. This was a 70s radio station. <laughs> in a city like some dude's fucking garage. In a city like Spokane. Yeah. It's probably like, come get me if you want to fucking stop me, right? I'm assuming that's the type of people that end up in Spokane. 
While leaving work one night, Shelley was surprised by a man in the parking lot who knocked her to the ground and shoved a gloved hand down her throat. Shelley fought back and she bit down hard on the asshole's hand, at which point he started to beat her. Yeah. Eh, well, I'm just going to bite harder. Yep. Co then tried to rape her, but the combination of her hard struggling and his Chikatilo limp made this impossible to achieve. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Yeah, good. Fuck you, buddy. Frustrated with his inability to rape Shelly, Co then rubbed his dick in her face Aww. and mastur- masturbated on her instead. Gross. Yep. And he also demanded that she urinate on him. So this guy, this fucking guy, it's like... He likes the pee-pee. It's not even like rape's bad enough. He's going to make it this fucking, as humiliating and disgusting yeah. and like... Oh, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah, disgusting pig. Sorry, I don't like this guy. It's going to show through many times. Oh, uh, he's a... Co also talked through the entire attack, asking Shelly about her sexual history and her boyfriend, and complimenting her on her radio career. Oh, Jesus. He even forced her to open mouth kiss him while he assaulted her. No. Once again, before he left the scene, Co almost cheerfully told Shelly that he'd kill her again or kill her if she went to the police. Lovely. Yeah. But this was one super tough lady. Shelly started broadcasting again while she was still at home recovering from the assault. Nice. Yep, and later when she finally returned to work at the studio, she reco- received calls from the attacker who reminded her that if she was going to the police, that he would kill her. That's fun. Yeah. In December 1979 alone, there were three more attacks that followed pretty much the same M.O. And the rapist continued to attack more and more frequently because, eh, that's what usually happens, right? Yeah. The first couple are testing the waters and then you find your groove. Yeah. You're like an athlete in the zone. Mm. In 1978, there were 49 total rapes in Spokane. Jesus. In 1980, that number had ballooned to 127. Once again, this is a town of 200,000 people. Yeah. That seems like a lot to me. I don't really know, but... That still seems like a lot. Mm. The police set up a task force in late 1980 to work the case, but some were skeptical one rapist had been responsible for all the rapes in the area. Mm. Which, fair enough. I mean, if someone did 127 rapes in one year, that's like a rape every third day. Yeah. That's That's a lot. That is. Yeah. Some believed up to four violent criminals were working at the time, and seeing how a three-named shitbag, Robert Lee Yates, was active killing 11 women in Spokane at the same time, it wasn't completely unwarranted. Plus, there are two other dudes, too, around Spokane. Um, fuck. Dodd, something Dodd, three-named asshole. Last Wesley name, Allen Dodd? That's the one, and he... And there's another dude, I remember his nickname's the Werewolf Killer. He only kills three, but apparently it's way over the fucking top. So, Spokane's got issues. What the fuck is up, Spokane? You've got some questions to answer. Just a few. The police investigated for any similarities in recent rape cases, and they found a bunch of cases where the survivor was blitz-attacked by someone in athletic clothing, choked with a gloved hand being forced down the throat, and sexually assaulted. Mm. The attacker talked throughout the assault, and all the women were warned that He'd kill them if they went to the police. Right. So there's one that stands out over and over and over. This one keeps showing up. Yeah. Like, yes, there are probably other rapists going on. But these ones are the same. Yeah, we're seeing this pattern a lot. Right. Yeah. As the number of attacks increased, the city went into a panic buying locks, guns, and large dogs in record numbers. So that's what happens. Yeah. You know. If there's a crime spree and you don't feel like the police are doing anything, you tend to double down on the weapons, guns, and dogs. Or weapons, locks, and dogs. Many women started taking self-defense classes, and men specifically avoided women while jogging just to avoid suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. People also started spray-painting white outlines where attacks had happened, but the attacks continued and just more outlines started showing. That's That's a rough jog. Yeah. Uh, Fuck, every 30 feet, huh? Uh, this trail's been filthy. <laughs> I can smell it. Oh, bleach. Yeah. On August 30th, 1980, a 15-year-old girl was taking the bus home from a rock concert when she was attacked and raped at 12.30 a.m. 
The attack followed Coe's usual routine, and in a lineup, the girl would identify Kevin Coe as her attacker. Mm. But unfortunately, that's not till he's caught. Julie Harmia, who was 27 at the time, had moved to the city at the height of the crisis. In the fall of 1980, Julie had just gotten married and moved to Spokane, where her husband worked. So right in the middle of it. Lucky lady. Almost forebodingly, the real estate agent actually mentioned that a serial rapist was working in the area at the God time. Damn. But that didn't stop the couple from buying a house there. Well, I mean, that's where his job is. I, you gotta say, though, who's this real estate agent? Because you deserve an award for the most honest real yeah, estate right? agent in the fucking world. Yeah. Yeah, like, kudos to you. Uh, Julie quickly found work at a downtown jewelry store, and she was coming home from her first day of work oh, when God. she was attacked. Being new to town, she missed her bus stop and got off at the next one. Distracted with the details of her recent move, she hardly noticed a jogger run past her, then sidestep off the road and crouch behind a parked car. How do you miss that? Right? It's not like she had her face in a cell phone. Right. Somehow, even this didn't register as sketchy to her. Maybe she's from a small town. I don't know. She walked past the car and looked directly at Fred Coe. So she walks past and turns, because she saw him, mm. like, ducked behind, and looks at him, gets a face full of him, before he jumps out, takes her to the ground, and starts to drag her to a nearby vacant lot. Yeah. Yeah. Co then shoved a gloved hand in her mouth before he switched hands and started pushing gravel and thistles down her throat. Jesus. She bit down on Co's hand and drew some of his blood. He then raped her for an unknown amount of time, talking throughout the ordeal. Any amount of time is too long. Yeah, before finishing and, of course, telling her not to go to the police or he'd kill, kill her. her. Yep. Later at the hospital... Julie overheard the police say it looked like she was the 30th victim Ew. of the South Hill Rapist. Yeah. Yeah. On December 17th, 1980, a 14-year-old girl known only as Sherry H. was attacked and raped at 6.30 p.m. while walking to a friend's house. And she would ident later identify Co as her attacker. So now that's a 14-year-old. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. It's just... Start raping children, shall we? Yeah. And on February 9th, 1981, a 20-year-old woman identified as Diane F. had just dropped her son off at her mother's at about 6.30 a.m. So Good the, Lord. A man grabbed her and threatened her with a knife. A fist was rammed in her mouth, and she was sexually assaulted with all the trimmings. Mm. Mm. Reporters who had been following the trend of similar rapes published article after article to increase awareness, and one of the city's daily newspapers, the Spokesman Review, led the way. Spoiler alert, this is not the paper the Coast Father ran. No? No. This paper published survivor accounts and, in 1981, a map that showed a connection with bus routes and the rapes, along with a story, How the South Hill Rapist Works. So, good for this newspaper trying to... Yeah. Surprisingly, the other daily newspaper in Spokane, Spokane Daily Chronicle, seemed to downplay the threat to the women in the city. Weird. Yeah. During the height of the attacks, they published an editorial that saw the major problem to be the threat to men. Stating that they hoped, I gotta put this in quotes, <laughs> quote, every man out jogging is not hounded off the streets because some rape reports have said the attacker wore jogging clothes. Won't somebody please think of the poor male joggers? The poor boys. But what about the men? Oh my god. Yeah. In February 1981, a 51-year-old woman was attacked while jogging on a junior high track in broad daylight. A man approached her and threatened her with a knife before sexually assaulting her. But this attack would lead to the first clue to finding Co. as a janitor at the school noticed a Chevy, Chevy citation with plates colored like or vanity plates. So apparently right. in Washington, vanity plates are a different color or they have a different outline. Okay. So he saw the Chevy citation with the, the weird plates and he took note of it. And he noticed that parked near the track at the time of the attack. Working with this, the police connected the car to a well-known family in the city. Dun, dun, dun. The Coes! <laughs> Gordon Coe, Fred's father, was the owner of the car, and probably not coincidentally, the managing editor of the Spokane Daily Chronicle. Yeah. What? <laughs> 
Not only did he have a hand in the paper's editorial that whined about the plight of male joggers in the city, he was actually the one who fucking wrote it. Of course he was. Yeah, he didn't just approve it. He fucking wrote it. He wrote it. He fucking wrote it. Though Gordon Coe seems like a real class act, the police had serious doubts if he was the rapist. The women that were assaulted described their attacker as much younger and better shaped than the elder Co. and suspicion quickly switched to his son, Fred. Hey, Fred. Hey, Freddy. Hey, how you doing? You jog? By 1980, the Spokane police noticed Co.'s signature in the rapes and they were able to add some detail. A man usually wearing jogging gear was targeting women out jogging or at bus stops. The attacks were always outside. They would attack from behind force a fist with a thick, rough leather glove or oven mitt down the woman's throat and rape her attempt to Fucking rape her. Fucking oven mitt. Yeah, an oven mitt does... Yeah. Uh, I was going to throw in a comment about the Halifax glove guy and poor young, unsuspecting men. Yeah. But uh, I don't think he's ever used an oven mitt on anybody. <laughs> Never asked any young men to put on oven mitts. So yeah, right. See how they fit. Oh, it's pretty sexy. Many times, Co would have, you know, the Chickatillo limp. And masturbate on the survivor if he couldn't rape them. And sometimes he'd get the women to defecate or urinate on him. Not 100% on the poop, but let's say it, because he's an asshole. Yeah, right? I like to think. Yeah. He likes to get pooped on. Right. We exactly. know he likes to get pissed on. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, if you're into that, it's only one step away from being like, you know what? Let's just try it. Right? <laughs> God. Let's not. Don't worry, honey. And most survivors of uh, Co always or also stated that he had a very professional sounding voice, like a DJ or something, where he had gone to radio DJ school. And he talked through he was a talker. He liked to talk throughout the rape, so they get to hear that voice. God. Yeah. Fucking asshole. That makes it so much worse mm -hmm. being raped by a DJ. Yeah. Weenie oh, and the butt. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Uh. A doctor said the injuries to the throats of co-survivors looked like they had been rubbed hard with coarse sandpaper. Ugh. Yeah. One woman described it like, quote, being held down by the tonsils. Uh, yeah. That sounds really fucking awful. Yeah, these, basically, these are really fucking horrible attacks. Mm. Like. Yeah. They left the survivors with heavy PTSD, and I read one account where 25 years later... One woman said she hadn't slept for more than four hours at one time since the attack. And another woman said that even though she had changed cities, quote, Co still lurked in the tree branches outside. Oh, yeah. This guy's such a piece of shit. And like we mentioned, Co would talk a lot during the attack from just standard filth that I assume a rapist would say. Right. To small talk and asking about personal life details and sexual experiences. No. Because he had dick issues at least one time, he stopped and yelled directly at his dick. Oh. And at least once, <laughs> a survivor said he yelled at what seemed to be an unseen person about his Chickatello limp. <clears throat> so during a fucking sexual assault, he's yelling at someone who's not there about his limp dick. That's Fucking horrifying. <laughs> yeah. He also sometimes performed oral sex on the women he attacked uh. because he's a gepper. <laughs> ah, no. <laughs> That's not what that is? No. No. After the attack, he would always tell the woman not to go to the police or he'd come back and kill her. Of course. And he knew where they lived. And if they were really lucky, sometimes he would try to bum some money off them before leaving. Well, you gotta give him cap fare. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Christ, this guy. Yeah. I hate him so much. He's fucking awful. I'm like, I can see I why know. he's in the worst. This you know? is, like, uh, this guy he's... like provokes regal rage. I'd like to meet this man because I might go to jail for a very long time. Yeah. So I'd rather not meet this man because, yeah. Know, spoiler, yeah. spoiler alert. He's still in prison. Good. So with these suspicions, the police put Fred Coe under surveillance on February 25th, 1981. They put a monitoring device in his car and observed him spending a considerable amount of time following buses and cruising high drive on South Hill where multiple assaults had occurred. 
One sec, because I have to talk about this GPS fucking unit they put in his car in 1981. Yeah, because <laughs> it was probably the size of a floor model TV. More like that, take 1981 style VCR. <laughs> but somehow they had that in his fucking car, and it's not small. No. It's like huge. I was wondering, because it would have to be. Yeah. And given I, the fucking tech. Oh my God, it was, it was a thumper. Yeah. So somehow they I mean, got my that... laptop from 1990 something that I eventually inherited from my dad who had it from work was the size of a freaking VCR. Like right. even one side of the screen was just <laughs> as thick as a, one laptop is now. Like I even had one of those up to Jesus, like 2010, like a five year old Toshiba that was like thick. It was thick. Like, it was a laptop, but it was not a laptop. And it was kind of reminds me of that size. Like This how? was more like a briefcase than a laptop. <laughs> 90s, baby. Yeah. The police also showed a picture of Coach to the janitor from the junior high school attack. And he exclaimed that that's him. So he had seen Co, and when they showed him a picture, they were like, he instantly said, that's our man. So even with a close eye on him, Co slipped his surveillance a few times and he was able to expose himself to a woman on one of these occasions. So he slipped his police fucking trail and exposed himself. Ugh. Except he didn't really. He wagged a dildo at this woman because his dick was a mess. What do you mean his dick was a mess? Yeah. It wasn't working. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a fucking limpy mess, so he wagged a dildo at a woman. And this woman... See, I just figured if you were wagging it, it didn't matter if it was limp or hard at that I, point. This guy, he's... He, but maybe he it's just... It's all about appearances. Yeah, so yeah. this one looks bigger, so here you go. I right. get it now, okay. And this woman was hardcore because she ran after him. It was like, fuck you, buddy, and he ran away. Good. Yeah. Well, he's a giant douche. He right? is. He's yeah, a fucking... he's a giant... Pansy ass douche. Yeah. At this point, the police felt it was too dangerous to allow Co to roam the community, and despite the case being mostly circumstantial, they arrested him on March 10th, 1981. He was charged for the rape of the junior high field earlier in the month. After the arrest, a large number of women came forward saying they were attacked by Co, with over 40 women eventually claiming he had brutally raped them. Now, to attempt to duck the lineup, Coe's public defender refused to re represent him in the lineup because apparently Washington has a law that any suspect in a police lineup has to be under entitled to counsel. Okay. Which, I don't really understand it. I kind of got this from, like, two sources that didn't really explain it well. But the outcome is the prosecutor called Coe's father and asked him to serve as Kevin's legal counsel. So I'm not sure if he had been a lawyer before. Weird, but yeah. anyway, the end effect is, oh yeah, father. his father had been in the military, so maybe his father agreed, and he had to listen as these 40 women came and tried to ID him. Oh. Only six of them ID'd... Um, Fred Coe as their attacker, but still his dad had to stand there and watch this parade of 40 women come through. And six of them be like, yeah, he raped me. That's a fun day for a dad. Right. Proud moment after writing about the poor male joggers. Yeah. Yeah. But there were some dis dissimilarities with some of the cases he was being charged with. The ages of the survivors ranged from 14 to 51. So he was kind of all over the place yeah. there. And while most had been at night, a few of the attacks had been during the day. The survivors gave conflicting accounts of the attacker's complexion. Some had been jogging and others had been getting off the bus when they had been attacked. And the rapists asked for money from some, but not all. Oh, maybe it was between paydays. Yeah, you know, right? I mean, to me, that's... I was a little more broke on this day. The only one that gets me is the complexion, but then you have attacking from behind at night. Right? That's, you know... To me, they're similar. When you're jamming a gloved fist down a woman's throat. Yeah, that's not the most common friggin'... Yeah. It's not like he pulled a knife. No. Well, sometimes he does, but the glove seems to always show up. Exactly. So the you, gloved fist down the throat is... His... That's unique. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> you don't hear that every day. Yeah. 
I don't want to hear it every day. No, absolutely not. More importantly, five of the six survivors had been hypnotized while questioned by the police before IDing Co. The defense would use this over and over to their advantage as the case went on. That is, spoiler alert, how the one um, K, or charge is the only one that holds. Mm-hmm. Yep. With the positive IDs, the police added the five additional attacks to the original rape charge, and Co. was officially charged in March 1981 for six counts of rape. His bail was set at $35,000, which is fucking nothing for six rapes. No. Especially from a family like this. And the family had no problem covering it, and he was released on bail. Of course. Yeah. Although the case against Coe was mostly circumstantial, the police and prosecutor felt confident going to trial. Because they always do. Yeah. What could go wrong? They had the positive IDs from the lineup. They had evidence of him hanging out in the same areas where the majority of the attacks had happened. And they had a distinct M.O. So right. really, they don't have very much. They have no. the M.O., they have the one link to the one attack. Using the M.O., they can, you know, and the IDs, they can get them for six more that way. They also had blood that matched the blood type on one of the survivors that had bit his hand. So they had that, but it was still all circumstantial because it's only a blood type. Yeah, it's not DNA. It is not. But before the trial, there was a problem. Before putting together the case against Co, the prosecution knew that having the trial in Spokane was going to be very difficult. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because everyone fucking knew about... Yeah, it's relatively small. Sense. It's hard to miss that many rapes. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the high profile of the case and the Co family... And the fact that his dad's the editor of one of the main papers. Yep. Like, you can't have that. Exactly. Almost everyone in the city was aware of the case, and finding an impartial jury was impossible. Yeah. So the venue was changed, and the trials moved to Seattle, and it began on July 20th, 1981. One of the most damning witnesses the prosecution had was Coe's live-in girlfriend at the time of the rapes. So he had a girlfriend during all this. Oh, that, that's a fun... Yeah. It's gonna be a good feeling for her. Oh, yeah. Mm. She test yeah. She testified that he sometimes came home from jogs with scratches and cuts over his face and body, but he claimed that these were from stray dog attacks while jogging in an affluent Spokane neighborhood. Uh. <laughs> she also said that during this time she once saw him washing an oven mitt at seven a.m. I would have some questions for you. And <laughs> the stray dogs gets me. Yeah. Coe's entire defense was denial. His lawyers relied on the fact that most of the evidence was circumstantial, and on cross-examination, they worked on the survivor's IDs. Of course. Yeah, that's basically what they relied on. You have no evidence, and the IDs can be pecked at. Yeah. Yeah. Then, Coe did what every egomaniac who thinks he's smarter than everyone does in this situation. Oh, fuck. He testified in his own defense. It wasn't me. (laughs) In a rambling statement that was mostly a greatly exaggerated telling of his life story... He emphatically stated that he wasn't the rapist, that he had never even owned a pair of leather gloves or any gloves of any kind. (laughs) Ever. He's a mitten man. While living in the mountains of Washington State. Yeah. Yeah. His mother Ruth sat in the back of the court during her son's trial, smiling during his delusional testimony and showing dissatisfaction when the prosecutor would object. Of course. When she testified on his behalf, she spun a hell of a story. (laughs) Oh, Ruth. What did Jacinda have to say? Dressed sharply and wearing a jet black wig. Oh, my God. She is Moira. (laughs) She's totally... I imagine... I can't even... I'm imagining there were some feathers, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, the crow inning. Yeah. (laughs) Ruth claimed the co was with her during all of the attacks. Oh, of course. He was with me. He's my boy. Right. My Further- boy's a good boy. She raised him right. Yeah. Furthermore, the only reason her son was seen in the areas of the attacks was because they were a pair of vigilantes. <laughs> yep. She said they would go out together. He's Batman. Yep. My son is Batman. They would go out together and independently try to find and catch the serial my rapist. Bat-mom. Yep. She said, quote, okay, get ready for this quote, because there's a part of it. Oh, my God. Son would jog, and I would follow in the car at a very slow pace. We were very unsuccessful, so we did give up. And, oh, yeah, 
That wasn't a shortened version of my son she used in the testimony. She re didn't refer to Fred as Fred or even as the name he changed it to later, Kevin. She called him son, as in capital S, as in this is my son, son. Son. Like it's a proper fucking name. Ugh. I don't know. Ugh. Don't know what to do with that. <laughs> that hurts my brain on a level. Yeah. Yeah. She's special. My mommy girlfriend calls me son. That's yeah. my name. <laughs> Fuck. Oh my god. Dude's got a lot going on. My dick doesn't work because I'm not with my mommy girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Mommy wouldn't like that I'm doing this. <laughs> oh, this is gonna make mommy mad. I'm cheating on mom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, luckily, the jury saw through Coe's obvious bullshit. And they found him guilty of four counts of first-degree rape. Not sure how the two got dropped, probably because they picked enough at the ID in defense to say... Yeah. Yeah. So this is when Coe's family started to panic. They thought that their golden boy Fred was going to prison labeled as a rapist, and this was way... Unacceptable. Way too much for them to... Yeah, to take. They're just unacceptable. Yeah. I want to talk to the manager. Oh, yeah. Full care now. <laughs> yeah. And because of the laws at the time, the prosecutor was able to float the idea that Co could be castrated for the offenses on top of jail time. Ooh. So this guy got Don't to be take like Golden Boys nuts. Oh we my can god. Jail him. Mommy is gonna Ooh. We can deball him. Oh <laughs> uh, the threat of being castrated, thrown in jail, and raped for being a serial rapist yeah. caused Co to change his defense. He dumped his trial lawyer and hired Carl Maxey, a civil rights specialist and a family friend. Oh. <laughs> friend of this family, he's going to be class. Yeah. For the pen penalty phase, Maxey worked out a defense that relied on labeling Co a sexual psychopath, which would result in a hospital sentence instead of prison. He's sick sexually. He's not just a, a rapist. He's mentally ill. Yeah. Now, this went against Coe's adamant denial of the attacks beforehand, where he said, ah, it wasn't me, but it was the best option he had. In a meeting with a psychiatrist engineered by his lawyers, Coe admitted to one of the rapes. But even this was done in the most assholey way fucking possible. Of course. He claimed that while he was jealous of the hillside rapist... He was only a copycat, and none of the other rapes could possibly be his doing. So he actually fucking praised his own raping. Ugh. Oh, oh my god. The psychiatrist spun this half assed admission into gold by testifying during the sen sentencing hearing. Co had confessed to him, and now Co desperately wanted treatment. So this psychiatrist took that as a confession. Of course. And that Co knew that he had a problem and wanted to be treated. He could be a changed man. Right. He could be good now. We could fix him. Now, have you ever heard of throwing the buck at someone? Yes. Because... Let's give three cheers right now for Judge George T. Shields, who obviously saw through all this bullshit, and I can just imagine the rage building during this fucking tired... He's me right now. Just he has to sit in the courtroom and listen to this bullshit. Judge George T. Shields, he disagreed with the defense's experts, and he sentenced Co. to, in sequence, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and life. Mm. All to be served consecutively. Nice. Yeah. That's the judge that's the judge version of Kramat asshole. Oh yeah. Fuck you and your shitty defense. You're never, ever, ever being free again. Fuck you. Yep. And as soon as as soon as he was sentenced, Co claimed his confession was a strategic move and he was still innocent. And that the judge, quote, in fact tricked us into confessing. Now, us, there's only you, first of all. Oh, you but there singular. is us, because don't forget about Ruth. Oh, never forget Mommy Dearest. The guilty verdict and harsh sentence made Mommy Ruth see red. <laughs> oh, God. She simply couldn't believe that her beloved, quote, son 
had been found guilty, and she decided that there must have been misconduct by either Judge Shields or Prosecutor Donald Brocker. Of course. Or brock it. Ruth straight up told a reporter that Shields didn't give Kevin a fair trial and had resolved to, quote, never play by the rules again because the law doesn't play fair. Mm-hmm. And that's not all she resolved to do. She decided Brockett and Shields had to be eliminated to pay for the alleged collusion and to pave the way to get Sun freed. Well, obviously. Yeah, how else are you going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. She was apparently quite vocal about this, and within a few months of Co going away, local police got a tip that Ruth was literally shopping for hitmen. Oh, nice. Yep. They set up an undercover agent to meet with her, and they met on November 19th. 1981, and following is a transcript of their conversation. (laughs) It's fucking amazing. Uh... Undercover cop, we were talking about the same thing. You want these people. Ruth, gone. Officer, dead. Ruth Coe, dead. Right. If I had my druthers, I'd have that prosecutor just made a complete vegetable so that he could never, ever be anything but a vegetable so that they had to care for him forever and he lived on and on that way. And the judge, officer, just tell me what you want. Ruth, well, uh, that judge, I'd like him gone. Dead. I'd like them both dead. Really, except with that brocket. I felt that he's a man about 45, 46, and he's been so filthy, and me feeling for him that I would love to see him just an addle-padded vegetable that had to be cared for. I have no idea what addle-padded is. Yeah. That his family had to take care of him for the rest of his life. I mean, diapers, all the rest of it. You want it 42 years of my son's life gone? I'd like to see him sit 42 years in um, as a baby. And um, to have him gone would be great, too. I mean, you can never be sure. I suppose how you clobber them, that could be the way I'd come out. So dead is great. But I think he should suffer. Wow. So this fucking psycho. Yeah. Yeah. Wants to vegetableize the prosecutor and judge for putting away her rapist fucking son. Well, that's a reasonable response, isn't it? Yes. And obviously, I love this. Coming from a family of means, she's willing to pay for this, right? Oh, of course. The next day, Ruth met the officer again and gave him $500 as a down payment for the hits. In total, she wanted a judge and a prosecutor killed or vegetableized. $4,000 total. (laughs) She was bargain shopping. Fucking hell. She was quickly arrested and could only mutter, I thought so, I thought so. That's right, I really did think so. Oh my god. Jesus, fuck. And all I can think of is Mallory bargaining for Pam. $5,000? Easily dollars. (laughs) Fred Coe's arrest and trial had been big news in the community, but the arrest of Ruth threw gas on the fire. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. A story about an affluent, well-known family spawning a serial rapist was now coupled with the spectacle of the family's mother plotting to murder her son's judge and prosecuting lawyer. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is like the best town gossip ever. I don't care where you are, this is great. Oh, yeah. This is an amazing fucking story. Yeah, right? seriously. Especially mm-hmm. when it's, you know, a well-respected family. Absolutely. And a woman who is probably annoying as shit to a lot of people because she thought she was fucking above who, yeah, yeah. right? Oh, my no, God. No, it is. Because even if this was oh. white trash, it's amazing. But their status, right. oh, it just makes it fucking glorious. And the fact that knowing her, she would have been the bitchiest, snootiest, fucking rotten bit. Like, yep. just awful person yeah oh this would be so (laughs) cathartic to a lot of people well don't expect that to last very long of course not yeah the defense ruth used just added more fuel to the fire with her lawyer once again maxie portraying her as crazy in order to establish diminished capacity well she is crazy yeah but she claimed she literally saw horns come out of Judge Shields' head when he sentenced Coe to prison. Yeah, I don't buy that. Her husband claimed she was addicted to a load of prescription pills, which I'm sure she was. Yep, I and believe a, that. Yeah, an absolutely. Ab- an absolutely appalling jumble of chemicals was the way he put it, and was become and she was becoming suicidal. In the courtroom, she was becoming more and more hysterical every day. So she's going full Moira. Oh yeah. Now, unfortunately, 
This judge, Judge Bibbs, was not Judge Shields. He was completely fooled by the performance. Oh, no. And he did find her guilty of trying to orchestrate the murders of these two men, Shields and Brockett. But this shithead gave her a paltry 20-year suspended sentence, 10 years of probation, and only one year in a county jail of her choosing. Wow. Mm-hmm. She would eventually only serve six months before being released. And at this moment, I'd like to sing the white privilege song. Yeah, because right. this Jesus woman should be screaming the that white. That is rich white bitch privilege. Mm-hmm. Holy fuck. Yeah, yeah. Nobody else gets that kind of treatment. No, you yeah. try to murder a judge and a prosecutor? Mm-hmm. Fucking hell. Yeah, this idiot Judge Bibb went on to say Ruth's life was like, quote, a Greek tragedy and built around, quote, a catastrophe of vengeance and a judgment of the avenger. The fuck is this idiot talking about? Yeah, Jesus. Did he want to bone her? Like, what the fuck? That's what I think. Yeah. Prosecutor Brockett, you know, one of the targets of the proposed hits, yeah, right? Saw it a different way, stating it was, quote, a sentence of the heart and not of the head, which is the nicest way of telling that judge, stop thinking with your dick, you fucking yeah, right? idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. clearly, you're thinking with your dick. Yeah, and that's he's saying that knowing he's probably going to have to see that judge again, so he's putting it mildly. Yeah, yeah. and also knowing that the bitch who tried to kill him is going to be out in six months. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's going to be a good feeling. Probation's not going to stop her. That's going to be a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Oh, good. No. That person who wanted to kill me for a couple thousand dollars is back out. Yeah. With a pat on the head from a fucking horny judge. Hooray! Mm. And as it turned out, Fred Coe's case wasn't finished. Three of his convictions involved witnesses that had been hypnotized and questioned, and in 1984, the Supreme Court overturned Coe's convictions on these grounds. So, the hypnosis kind of came back. To bite them. Yeah. A new trial was ordered, also to be held in Seattle, and the survivors had to come to court again and testify fucking three years after the first conviction. So let's live through it all again. Yeah. These poor women. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, in every way. They've now been raped and gone through two fucking trials. Yeah. Yeah. On February 12th, 1985, Coe was convicted of three rapes and received another round of heavy sentencing, amounting to life plus 55 years. So once again, fuck you, asshole. Yep. Somehow, while in prison for multiple rapes, Co used a pen pal service to meet and convince a woman named Sean O'Brien to marry him in 1986. Ah, what the fuck? Why not? Being a true Casanova, he proposed to her in a cassette tape he made while masturbating. Ew. <laughs> oh my god. And that one fucking killed me. I literally almost cried laughing over that. Just because I was so not expecting it. That's... Thank you for not proposing that way, sweetie. I, I really I thought about it. <laughs> Just ring on fucking my hand and the dick in the other. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an audio tape. You don't even know I have a ring. You just hear me tugging and grunting. Yeah. Yeah, furiously. Yeah. Oh, God. Now, after persuading this woman to get multiple credit cards and send him cash advances of $12,000... She got tired of his bullshit and divorced him in 1988. Yeah. So this guy, I mean, he had, jail has obviously changed him for the better. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. He's, he's doing well. He's a fucking asshole. On January 29th, 1988, the Washington State Supreme Court reversed two of the three remaining convictions. Oh, again, God damn it. Again, because of the hypnosis of the survivors. Yeah. Yep. The only exception was the assault on Julie Harmia, her vivid recollection of the attack hadn't come under hypnosis, and the blood she had drawn when she bit the hands of matched. the attacker matched the blood type. So you've got two things kind of going. Thank God, Julie, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hers was the only conviction that was upheld, and it carried a nice 25-year sentence. Thank fuck for that. Yeah, but with only one of the original six convictions remaining against him, Coe could have been released on parole in four years under the right circumstances. That's disgusting. Yeah. So that would have four years from eighty eight, so that would have been early nineties, ninety two ish. Yeah. Luckily, Coe took these circumstances and he fucked them. 
He didn't attend any sexual offender therapy sessions or any of his parole hearings the entire time he was incarcerated. Brilliant. To do so, he would have to admit that he had committed a crime. Ah. Yep, and he adamantly denied this. Of course. Mm-hmm. Later, when asked about parole, Coe said in his own words... Oh, God. Quote... Quote, parole hearings? Oh, no, 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 no. They wouldn't let you go unless you admit guilt. I'm not going to admit guilt. I did nothing wrong. There was no point at which I was going to the parole board and say, oh, yeah, it was me and let me out. During his incar incarceration, Coe hunkered down and started to research his case. And in one interview, he said, I'm probably the world's leading expert on... In 1994, probably because of his tag as a rapist and his overall shittiness as a human being, right. Co was attacked with a razor attached to a toothbrush by an inmate. Good. When asked about his motive, the inmate who attacked Co said, quote, hurting people is fun. <laughs> the wound uh... took a hundred stitches to close. Oh, Best quote God. in this entire story is the psycho with the toothbrush razor being like, hurting people's fun. Fuck. In 1996, Fred's mother, Ruth, died. Oh. And despite everything her crazy ass had done for him, he didn't even try to get leave for her funeral. What a good son. I mean, she's crazy and he's a piece of shit, but Jesus Christ, at least she tried. Yeah, right. She did everything more than and way yeah. more. Yeah. She, she might have been a little creepy and your relationship was definitely way too sexual, but... Mm, yes. You know. Uh, he could have at least gone to the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. That's your mom. Yeah, right. So, in 2006, Co was getting close to his release date after serving 25 years. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, but before that could happen, the state attorney filed to have him committed under the Sexually Violent Predator Act. Ooh. <laughs> you don't want to have anything to do with that. No. No. I'm assuming it's it literally... It sound great. It's called, with capital letters, Sexually Violent Predator Act. Yeah. Mm. Not good people. <laughs> this act gives the court the power to indefinitely commit someone to a mental hospital if the person quote, suffers from a mental abnormality or personality disorder which makes the person likely to engage in predatory acts of sexual violence if not confined in a secure facility. In layman's terms, if we let this guy out, he's going to rape somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Which, if you let this guy out, he's going to rape somebody. I would agree. Or, at the very least, rub his limp dick on somebody. Mm. <laughs> like butter. Uh. Mm -hmm. Co would be sent to such a facility, the Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island, to await the hearing. While there, he was asked how he felt about the upcoming trial, and this self-important piece of trash oh, had the gall to say, quote, Isn't it like throwing the Christians to the lions? <laughs> That's how fucking delusional this guy is. That's how... Duh. This guy's amazing. I know. Somewhere between 1981 wow. and 2006, it was believed that all the rape kits suspected of being from the South Hill Rapist had been lost. But before the hearing, a lost rape kit was found in the Spokane Police Evidence Room. When tested, it matched Co, but almost unfucking believably, the DNA obtained it was the DNA obtained from Julie Harmia's case. Oh, so it was the conviction they already sakes. had stick. Uh, yep. After many delaying motions by the defense, his civil commitment case began in 2008. The entire Co family, minus the deceased Ruth, still firmly backed Kevin and didn't believe he had committed a single attack. It was just a case of mistaken identity in their eyes, and his sister even volunteered to take him in if he was released. Oof. Wonder if she had daughters. Right. Yeah. Because this was a civil commitment trial, the rules of what was allowable was much different. Unlike a criminal trial where only details of the crimes being charged can be presented, in a civil commitment case, any crime that is believed to have been committed by the defendant are admissible. Ooh. So it's kind of like fucking OJ's like, civil yeah. case. Like, yeah. The burden of proof is lower. It's very much so. In a 98-page psychological profile done by the prosecution... Every crime attributed to Coe 
attributed to Coe from flashing to rape to pedophilia were described in graphic detail. Fun times. Yeah. That's uh, a terrible read. <sighs> Do not recommend. No. The moment he was sent to McNeil Island to await the hearing, Coe's demeanor changed. He had always been a relatively good-natured prisoner despite not taking part in stuff. Yeah. You know, he, he wasn't hard to control, but according to his sister, he had lost hope when he was sent to the new facility. Oh, no. Yeah. She said to the press that Coe's biggest problem wasn't being a sec violent sexual predator. It was that he was depressed. <laughs> He's just sad. <laughs> He's sad. Sad Aww. Frederick. The defense fell flat like all the others. Good. And on October 15th, 2008, Coe was sentenced to an indefinite term at McNeil Island. And to this day, he denies being the South Hill rapist and he claims his complete innocence. But he's still at McNeil Island facility for fucking sex, sexually deviant fucking assholes like him. Uh. Yeah, and that's where old Frederick Coe is today. Still sitting there. Surrounded by other the fucking of the gross. other hardcore sexual predators. Oh. Put them all on an island. These guys fucking did. It's called McNeil Island in <laughs> Washington. Stay the fuck away from it. Yeah, you don't want to go swimming there? No, I can smell it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> he's fucking awful. Yeah, he's a disgusting, vile, like murder. I know I've already done one murderer that I feel way more empathy for than this guy. Yeah, uh, this David guy Moss. is just a fucking... Oof. Yeah, because I have uh, David Moss done. He's the guy, he's just broken. He's a yeah. broken human being. You actually feel bad for him. This guy, I mean, he's broken. But you and don't then he fucking feel bad for no, him. No, he like flaunts it around. Yeah. Fucking just awful. <laughs> Disgraceful piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. We made it. We made we it. We made it through our first rapist. Ugh. How do you feel? I need a shower. <laughs> I need a fucking sandblasting. Yeah, oh my that's god. disgusting. Yeah, there, that's, that was a lot. Oof. Yeah. But we chose to do the worst. Yeah, this is what we're here this for. This is our calling. <sighs> so if, <laughs> if you like that story, I think you might need to talk to someone. Because that's... <laughs> but if you did, feel free to rate and review on iTunes. Uh, or you can... Tell weirdo people about us because, yeah. you know, that's how we roll. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook. I add all the, that stuff afterwards. Yeah. And that's, that's the Fred Co. story. That's us. <laughs> so until next time. Uh, sleep well tonight. Yeah, have fun and play safe. Yeah, don't go for a job. Yeah, avoid the gloved fucking throat or fist <sighs> on the throat. <sighs> God. <laughs> <sighs> Do not like. Yeah. Yes. As always, have fun, play safe. <laughs> you can email us at mentalillnesstheater at gmail.com and you can find us on social media at Mental Illness Theater, the worst on Facebook, Mental Illness Theater on Patreon, and Unicorn Holes on Instagram. <laughs>